Would you now remain standing out of respect for God's word as I read our sermon text, 1 Samuel 17, verses 38 to 54. This is the inspired word of God. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over the armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaaraim as far as Gath and Ekron. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As you're seated, would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that stands therein. And we thank you that it is not just words on a page, but rather your voice speaks to us even now. For your word is living and active. Your spirit is moving through it. We thank you that you are with us now. Even when things don't go as we plan or as we would think is wise, 
you are at work sovereignly in control of all things. You are a good and loving God. And so we trust you now to speak to us as we need to be spoken to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, as we said. Uh, we've, we've gone through this series of, of the true and better, right? Jesus being the true and better Adam, the true and better Abraham, the true and better Moses. And today we come to Jesus as the true and better David. It would apply to all of David's life, but no better place is there to see this than in the story of David and Goliath. I suppose we're all at least somewhat familiar with this story, even before I read it this morning here. Uh, after all, it, it has a certain cultural, uh, cultural uh, currency, right? It's cultural significance. Just about everywhere in our culture, if, if you have a, a story of an underdog, right, you, it, it would be called one of two things. Either it's a, it's a Cinderella story, right, or it's a David and Goliath story. That's just one of the kind of cultural phrases we have that's in our vernacular because we're just so familiar with it. But as familiar as the story is, perhaps even because we are so familiar with it and because it becomes applied in this way, we have a tendency to get the story wrong. I would argue that that indeed is, is what we often do. I was just thinking about this idea this week as I was getting ready, and I, I wanted to kind of just take a, a, a little bit of a, a summary poll, if I could, a survey of sorts, uh, to see how the world deals with the idea of David and Goliath. And so I just did a, a Google search, right? Just looked up, looked up David and Goliath stories. And first thing that popped up for me uh, as I did, actually, I, I take it back, it was an Amazon, I think I searched on Amazon, but anyway, regardless, uh, as it popped up, the first book that popped up was, was a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Explore the power of the underdog in Malcolm Gladwell's dazzling examination of success, motivation, and the role of adversity in shaping our lives, right? In, in his eyes, the story of David and Goliath is all about how, how we face adversity in life, but, you know, you can have success just like David had success, even as you face such adversity. That's a really a common theme. I saw another one that, especially with Christmas so rapidly approaching, seemed appropriate. David and Goliath, how to compete and beat the online giant, 100 proven promotions for brick-and-mortar retailers, right? Again, it's this idea that, that you know, boy, you know, with the big big giant online retailers you know you as the little david right the little the little brick and mortar store who has it all against them can succeed just like david against the goliath but even if we look at it within within christian circles we tend to get it wrong i think right we we look at a, a little children's book i saw called david and goliath here's here's what the the heading said about it said the classic Bible story of young David, who grew up to be a king, feels fresh again. Many kids today can relate to him, young, small, and having to stand up to the bully, right? Saying the story of 
David here is one of just having to stand up to a bully, right? And that's what it's, it's all about. Or perhaps there was this other book I saw, which is actually a book by, by a very gifted and, and uh, accomplished Christian author from whom I have actually gleaned a lot of, of growth. He's, he's blessed my personal walk with Christ. So this is not to just throw him under the bus, but, but here's the, the subheading, you know, the description of his book about David and Goliath. Like David, you know well the presence of, you, of Goliath. Your Goliath doesn't carry a sword or a shield. He brandishes blades of unemployment, abandonment, or depression. Your giant doesn't parade up and down ancient hills. He prances through your office, your bedroom, your classroom. He brings bills you can't pay, addictions you can't resist, a past you can't shake, and a future you can't face. How long has your Goliath stalked you, invaded your first thought of the morning, and last worthy of the night? David knows a little something about facing giants. The shepherd boy seemingly had little to offer against the nine-foot, nine-inch Goliath. You could read his story and wonder what God saw in him. Throughout his life, David fell as often as he stood, stumbled as often as he conquered. But for those who know the threat of a Goliath, David gives this reminder. Focus on giants, you stumble. Focus on God, your giants tumble. Are you ready to face your giant? Let David's story inspire you. The same God who helped him will help you. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that that is true. The same God who helped David does stand ready to help us as well. But I don't believe that that's the story we are to take from David and Goliath. It is not an inspirational story about how to defeat the giants in your life. The story of David and Goliath is something far better than that. It's not just a classic underdog story. Its, it's message is not just you can defeat your giants if only you trust in God. Right? And likely if you have been with us these past few weeks or even if you just looked at the sermon title this week, you have an idea of what I'm going to tell you the story of David and Goliath is about. Right? It is about the fact that Jesus is the true and better David. It is to, to point forward to Jesus who was the one who was to come. Just like, like the prophet said, you know, make, make way the path for him. So the story of David makes way the path for Christ who is going to come after him. We see certain similarities in the two of them, certain, certain uh, commonalities. The story is intended to point us to Jesus. First of all, we see in both David and Jesus, an unusual protection, right? We, we see what David does first. Let's, let's look at David, and, and, and Saul provides him with the armor that he would normally take out to, to go into battle. And David quickly realizes that, that he can't really use these things. It, he, he says specifically, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them, right? He, he's not tested them before. He's not worked with them. He does not know how to work with them. He does not trust them to protect him. But what has he tested for protection? What does he trust for protection? He trusts God, right? Because, because before this, he 
he has told us, we, we didn't read it today in our text, but, but just before this passage that our text covers, he said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took the lamb for the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. And your servant has struck down both lion and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. You see, he trusts God to protect him. He trusts God to protect him for two reasons. One is because he has protected him in the past. He has a, a track record of protection. He has, he has seen him be faithful to him and taking care of him, but also because he is not seeking his own glory. He's not seeking his own purposes, but he is doing the work of the Lord. He is protecting the Lord's honor. He is standing for the Lord's glory. Because this Philistine, this giant, has defied the Lord. He has come against the Lord. He has spoken ill of the Lord. David will not have that. So he trusts the Lord to protect him as he goes forth against him. We too should, should look back on the times in our lives that God has been faithful to protect us, the times he has been faithful to care for us, the times he has seen us through the darkest of nights, the times where he has carried us through the most impossible of situations. And we should look back on those times and trust him going forward. We should see that his protection has been good and sound and faithful. Unfortunately, we don't do this perfectly, do we? Right? Our, our faith wavers. It, it, it's not strong. It, it's not enough to keep us going at times. Fortunately, what God judges us on is not the, the strength of our faith, the purity of our faith, but rather he judges us on the merit of Christ Jesus. He who was completely faithful, he who is completely faithful, he who, who took on our burdens. We'll come back to that in just a bit. Right? That's not to say that everything always works out the way we want it to. God, God hasn't promised promise to protect us from any danger, any difficulty at any time. We, we will at times have harm come our way living in a broken and fallen world. But that's a, another reason that David had something going for him. He had been anointed as king, right? We read that earlier in our, our, our Unison Scripture reading, that he was the one that God had pointed to who was to be the king of God's people. He had been anointed, but, but had not yet taken the throne. He knew that that was coming, that that had to be, and he couldn't die. He couldn't, because the Lord had a plan for him. He had a promise for him. He had a role for him. He had told him that this would be his future, and so he took God at his word. We can take God at his word, too. Now, he doesn't promise that we will live for a certain amount of time. He doesn't tell us that. He doesn't promise us that we get to be uh, the king of the people of God. He doesn't make that promise to us for sure. But what does he tell us in his word that we should be confident in as a protection? But the whole armor of God, not a physical armor, right? But that armor told of in Ephesians 6. Right? He says, put on the whole armor of God for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present 
darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We spend too much time, too much energy, I think, uh, involving ourselves in the wrong battles. There is a very real battle going on that we should be worried about, that we should be focused on, and that is the battle between good and evil, the battle between right and wrong, the battle between light and darkness. Right? Not because we can win that battle, but left to our own devices, we can't. But Christ Jesus can and will and has. And we'll see the fruit of that victory in his return. He has taken up the whole armor of God. He has stood with total faithfulness. Just as David, who found his strength, was not in the weapons that he held in his hands, but rather in the, the one in whose hands he himself was being held. Right, this is specific. Uh, Jesus lived. He who also was the anointed king, the Messiah, the one who was to come, the one who trusted in God, the one who, who armored himself in God's protection. He who trusted in God perfectly. He also had another thing, an unimpressive appearance. First right? Samuel 16.12 says he, he, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. He was, he was a good-looking guy, that David was. Right? Not necessarily the guy you'd think of as a warrior king. Right? If, if you're going to have a king, he's going to lead you into battle. You want you know, a big, big Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy, right? Conan the Barbarian. Right? That's the guy we want as king. We, we don't want the guy necessarily who's a, a poet and a songwriter. Right? The guy who, who, who looks like he just stepped out of the pages of GQ, maybe, but, but maybe isn't quite as big. Right? That, but that's the idea. It says that he was, he, he was a handsome guy. He was good looking. You know? Didn't look like a warrior. Goliath looked like a warrior. Goliath, over nine and a half feet tall. Armor that weighed over 125 pounds. Right? This is the kind of guy we want to be doing our battles, isn't it? But David came unimpressive in appearance. But remember what Samuel, what the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? Goliath looked at the outward appearances. He, he looked at David, this, this young, little, pretty boy who was running at him without any armor, without any real weapons. And, and, and he cries at him, am I a dog? Did you come at me with, with sticks? Right? He, said, he said, you don't look the part, Davy. I'm going to dispatch of you. Right? And sometimes we, we do that in the church as well. We, we look at people, we say, do they look the part, right? Are they dressed up in their Sunday best? Or, but, but then you know, somebody else comes in and you see, oh boy, they, they didn't even dress up for church. My goodness, they're wearing a t-shirt and they've got holes in their jeans. And, right? And, uh, oh my goodness. They don't, but, but the Lord looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. We want to be careful not to fall into that trap. We want to be careful not to, to look at outward appearances only. If we did, we, we would miss Jesus 
of course. Right? We would miss Jesus who's spoken of in prophetic words in, in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he had heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root from dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Just like David, Jesus did not look impressive. Right? He, he didn't look like the, the king who would come to conquer, the king who would come to win the victory. And just like David, Jesus also had an unwavering confidence. Right? Because he knew it didn't matter how he looked, what was important, what was in his heart, and how he trusted in the Lord. Right? Look at David's response to Goliath's taunts. He says in verse 45, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. A couple things here. First of all, he, he's saying he's coming in the name of the Lord of hosts. Right? He, he's, he's there on behalf of God, right? He's, he's coming in the name of God. He's coming in the power of God. He's, he's coming with God with him. And so he doesn't need to worry about what he has or doesn't have because he has God, right? If you've got everything you need, then you don't need anything else. David had everything he needed. And he comes against him again. We see this idea how he says, this God whom you have defied. It's actually, we, we didn't read the whole chapter. If we had read the whole of chapter 17, we would have seen this phrase pop up in six different places. Verse 10, verse 25, twice in verse 26, and verse 36, and in verse 45. This, this idea that, that Goliath had defied God. Right? It, it, it's actually a Hebrew word that, that has the meaning of, of not just going against, but this idea of mocking or deriding, right? And you might even have picked up in the part that we did read, this idea of the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. You see, the idea isn't just that Goliath is just some, some guy who happens to be a little off base in his theologies. He's a little misled, you know, and he's kind of going, no, the idea is he is one who is against God. He is intentionally against God. He is going against God. He is mocking God. He is battling God. And David says to him, you've got your weapons, but I've got something better. I've got God, and I'm confident in him. Right? It's that same confidence that later would allow David to pen Psalm 51, right? The great psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba, where he turns to the Lord and confesses his sin and throws himself on the mercy of God. He can do that because of his unwavering confidence in God. Right? If, if he doesn't know what God is going to do with him, right? If, if he is fearful that God might just say, well, you screwed up, I'm kicking you out. Right? Then, then can I really confess my sins to that God? Can I really be transparent to that God? Can I really let myself be open to him? But he has no such fears because he is confident of the relationship that he has with God. And so is the confidence that we can have with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be confident in his love for us. Not because of what we have done or who we are, but because of 
what Christ has done, and who we are in him. Right? And so it is that Jesus in this battle is not, in his battle, is not looking to, to, to just do something for himself. He's looking to bring glory to God, to his Father. He's looking to, to accomplish that purpose. He's protecting the people of God. Just like David comes to do so, Jesus was doing it, and we see an unhesitating commitment. Right? First from David, right? The Goliath, the Philistine arises and comes to meet him. And what does it say about David? But David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Right? It doesn't say that Goliath stood up and came after him and David started to worry. It doesn't say David started to fret. David thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? He didn't say, well, I guess this is the moment of truth. I've got to deal with it. No, he ran quickly to the battle line. He said, bring it, big boy. Let's get this over with. Let's do this. Let's do it now. You need to fall because God needs to be glorified. He came quickly to the battle line. Just as Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Right? He, he ran to the battle line as well, didn't he? he? He ran to the battle line, which is there in the cross, the ultimate battle line, the battle line between good and evil, between life and death, between light and darkness, between God and and Satan, everything hanging in the balance. And there at the cross, Jesus was victorious. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him become offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus took on human flesh. And, and in doing so, was willing to endure all the suffering that we endure, endure all the pain that we endure, endure all the trauma and trials and tears that we endure, and endure even death on our behalf. That was the battle line that he was willing to run to, and it wasn't out of just... Uh, uh, lack of knowledge of what was coming, right? It wasn't an ignorance. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he, he literally bled and sweat and, and cried out to his heavenly Father, if there is a way, Lord, remove this cup of suffering from me. But there was no hesitating whatsoever, he said, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What unselfishness. And that's where we finally land on him, our unselfish champion. Right, David is an unselfish champion too, right? He, we, we see what he does. He, he wins the victory. He slays Goliath. The, the enemy armies worry and scatter and run away. And, and it's almost comical if you look at it. The armies of Israel, now that Goliath has been slaughtered, now that the enemy armies are already running away, all of a sudden they've gotten brave, right? You know, it's kind of like 
like when you're about to get in a fight with a bigger guy and somebody breaks you up and then while they're holding you back, you're like, hey, let me at him, let, let me at him, because you know you're not actually going to get at him, right? You know, and so, so here are these, these all of the sudden brave Israelites chasing after these guys that they're not going to be able to catch up with, right? You know, oh, well, okay, I, you know, and then they come back and what do they do? They join in looting the town, basically, now that everybody's gone. Right? And they get to share in the spoils of the victory, right? The victory that they did nothing to accomplish. David is the one who has won the victory. He's won it all by himself. What, what he could have rightly done was said, okay, everybody, gather up everything and take it to my place because it's all mine. But he doesn't do this. They all shared in the spoils of the victory. They shared in what he had won. You see, we're, we're not to see ourselves in the brave and victorious David. We are to see ourselves in the poor and pitiful people of Israel. Right? Those who, who did nothing to help accomplish the victory that Christ Jesus has won for us, but who get to share in the spoils of that victory nonetheless. Who who get to enjoy all he has accomplished, he who has won our battle, the anointed king of God's people, our federal head, our covenantal responsibility, who has gone to battle against our greatest giant and who has conquered that giant, who has, who has killed him so that he might never harm us again, so that we can share in the spoils of that victory, right? So that we could be heirs of his kingdom, that we could be be given the crown of life that we could reign with him forever. And just as, as David defeated the giant who was Goliath, Jesus has defeated the giants of sin, death, and Satan. And, and the spoils of that victory are yours to share in. For Christ not only endangered himself, but he actually laid down his life and died for you. He was the, the good shepherd spoken of in John chapter 10, right? That good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And so that's my question for you today is do you know the good shepherd? Right? David was a shepherd when he was called. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who is our king and our champion. Do you know Jesus who took on flesh in the form of, ba of a baby. Jesus who, who walked in all righteousness for all of his life. Jesus who, who loved you and laid his life down for you. Jesus who is one day returning to set all things right. Do you know Jesus? I hope you do. I pray that you do. If you do, then, then rejoice that you can share in the spoils of his victory. Rejoice with King Jesus, our champion. If you don't, I pray that you would. Trust in him. Trust in him. Depend on him. Do not look to yourself. Do not say, I can beat the giant. No, you can't beat the giant. But Jesus has. Trust in him. Trust in him and know the joy of your salvation. Know the joy of having a king and a champion who loves you enough to die for you. I want to close with a story today. It's a story about a song. Actually, a story about 
a poem that, that later became a song. In 1861, the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow uh, was, was um, dealing with some hard things. His beloved wife of 18 years had recently died in a tragic fire. About a year later, he received a letter informing him that his oldest son had, without his consent, left to join the Union Army. He was off to fight the Civil War. About a year later, uh, in December of 1863, he received another letter, a letter informing him that his son had been severely wounded in the Battle of Mine Run. And with these things weighing heavy on his heart that December 25th, he sat down and, and wrote a poem. It's a poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. In it he notes how the church bells rang out with their, their familiar songs. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The words of the poem continue in that spirit, but his experience belied that truth. His experience belied what he was writing, right? Because, because he hadn't seen, he wasn't experiencing peace on earth and goodwill to men. This seemed foreign to him at the time. So after three verses of such Christmas joy, his tone changed, and in verses four through six, there's a darkness leading ultimately to these words. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Perhaps that's how you feel today. Perhaps... You've experienced great pain, great loss. Perhaps you deal with grief or sorrow. Perhaps you just look at the world around you and the, the pain that so many people feel and it just weighs on you like a giant burden. And you say, how long, oh Lord? How can you allow such terrible things to happen? Well, if that's the case, then you especially need to know the truth of Longfellow's seventh and final verse. He writes, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth goodwill to men. You see what he's saying? He's not imagining that all is right right now. He's not imagining that there is no pain or sorrow in the world. He knows all too well that it is present. But he is saying there will come a day when it will be gone. The right will prevail. It will cast away all that is wrong. He, he does not try to explain away the fact that there is 
bad things in the world right now. He doesn't try to explain why it's there even. Right? But, but there's two things we know that it can't be. It can't be because God is not able to do anything about it because God is able to do all things. He is all-powerful. He's the one who created all things out of nothing. And it cannot be because he does not love us. Or look at the lengths to which he has gone for us. Setting aside his glory, taking on human flesh, dying for our sins, sharing in our suffering. Jesus is the champion for whom we hunger, the champion to win the battle for you, the champion who will one day make all things right. This is the message of David and Goliath. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is the longing of Advent. And this is the love of God. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we, we do pray now that you would confirm these truths in our hearts, Lord. We pray that that we would each know you as our champion, as our king, as our brother, as our friend, as our Lord, as our God, as our Savior, Christ Jesus. Be that for each of us. May that truth grow in our hearts. If we do not know it to be true, make it true in our hearts now, Lord. If we do know it to be true, help us to grow deeper into that truth. And may we live according to your grace and for your glory always. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you rise now as we sing together? We've got, uh, again, it's an alternate hymn, an audible here that we're singing. I believe it is hymn number 236. Right, 236? 236, to God be the glory. Amen.